Today we continue our four-part sermon series simply entitled Commitment. We've been answering the question, what does it mean to belong to First Baptist Church Pelham? Two weeks ago, we concluded that church membership is fundamentally being committed to Christ. He is the God-man, and we make much of Him. Last week, we said that church membership also is a commitment to the very Word of God. Not only do we learn it and love it, but we live it in everyday life. This morning, I want to submit to you that part of what it means to be a member of First Baptist Church Pelham is that we are committed to this faith family. Practically speaking, we are committed to church attendance. Because what we do here every single Sunday carries eternal ramifications. With that in mind, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, I invite you to stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Hebrews chapter 10, allow me to begin at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is His body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. The Hebrew letter was written to encourage believers to persevere in the face of persecution. It was written in the middle of the 60s of the first century to second generation believers who were not eyewitnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus, yet they had come to faith based on the testimony of others. The truth of the matter is we have a lot in common with the original recipients of this Hebrew letter. For no one here was an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus. Yet our faith is because of the faithful testimony of others that they've passed on to us. In the mid-60s of the first century, there was intense persecution against Christians. This persecution reached its height under the Roman rule of Claudius and his successor Nero. Simply because people were Christians, they suffered higher taxation. Their property was confiscated. They lost their jobs. Families were ripped apart and oftentimes they lost their very lives because they declared faith in Jesus Christ. Because of this, it caused many believers to shrink back in their faith. Some were abandoning their call. They were Uh, avoiding church they they were abandoning their convictions they were going back to their old way of life and the author of the Hebrew letter says 
unequivocally that you and I as followers of Jesus Christ must not be bogged down by the surroundings that are occurring around us, but we must be preoccupied with the hope of Christ that is within us. So in Hebrews chapter 10, a few verses later, verse 32, he says, remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering, Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a lasting better possession. So do not throw away your confidence. Then in verse 39 of chapter 10, he concludes, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. The argument of the author of the Hebrew letter is brilliant. It is masterful. For what do you tell people who are shrinking back in the faith? What do you tell people who have become complacent? What do you tell people who are non-committal? What do you tell people who become lethargic in the ways of the Lord? You tell them, look to Jesus. Because when you and I see who we have in Christ and what we have in Christ, we rise up in faithful obedience unto Christ. And so all throughout this letter, the one single theme of the author of the Hebrew letter is that Jesus has sovereign supremacy. He is great than anyone or anything. He is greater than Moses. He is greater than Melchizedek. He is greater than all the angels. He is greater than all the prophets. He is greater than Aaron and Joshua and David. He is greater than the high priest who offers sacrifices for not only is Jesus the great high priest who offers sacrifices, but he himself is the great sacrifice. And so Jesus is greater than anything or anyone we could ever see or experience or read about. He is sovereignly supreme. And so the author of the Hebrew letter says, when we remember what we have in Jesus, we will not shrink back. We will not be non-committal. We will not grow lethargic in the faith. When we keep our eyes fixed and gaze upon Christ, we will realize who He is, who we are, and what we have in this world and in the world to come. So in our passage, the author does the very same thing. He says, in Jesus, we have full access to God. Verses 19 and 20. In Jesus, we have an advocate before God. Verse 21. So in light of the fact that Jesus gives us full access and he is our advocate before God, there are three things we ought to do in light of who Jesus is. So he says in verse 22, I want you to draw near to God. In verse 23, hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. And then in verses 24 and 25, he says, I want you to consider how you can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Consistent all throughout the New Testament. The authors tell us, in light of who Jesus is, this then is how you ought to live. So in light of the fact that he grants us access to God. 
In light of the fact that he is our advocate before God, this then is how you ought to live. Look carefully with me at verse 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. In other words, because of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, we have now been granted full access to God. And because we have full access to God, we can enter God's presence with confidence. We can enter the holy place with confidence. In the Old Testament, regardless of whether it was the tabernacle or the temple, at the heart of this construction was a place called the holy place. And at the very middle of the holy place was the most holy place, otherwise called the holy of holies. In the temple, a veil separated the most holy place from the holy of holy place. And only the high priest could go behind that curtain. And he could only go once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. He could only go behind the curtain once a year. He was the only one who could ever go behind the curtain because behind that veiled holy of holy place was housed the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was believed to be the footstool of God. It was taught that God himself would dwell in the most holy place. And so once a year, the high priest would wash his body, wash his garments, offer holy sacrifices unto the Lord on behalf of the people. He would wrap a rope around his waist. He would walk behind the veil with a basin of blood from the sacrificed lamb in his arms. And then he would take a hyssop plant and he would sprinkle the mercy seat, which was the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the reason he had a rope around his waist is because people believed that perhaps he would get back there, see the very presence of God himself, the Shekinah glory of God, and he would drop dead. And what do you do with a dead priest in the Holy of Holies? Nobody else can go back in there, so they have to pull him out. The attending priests who were uh, attending the ceremony and services outside of the veiled Holy of Holies, if he dropped dead and there was a thud, then they knew they needed to pull the rope in order to get the dead corpse out uh, from the uh, mercy seat of God. The author of the Hebrew letter says, Now we have access to the holy place. Now we can go to the very presence of God. When Jesus was crucified, it's the gospel writer Matthew who says that the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, thereby signifying that through the person, the blood, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I can gain personal access before a very holy God, not standing in our own righteousness, but standing in the righteousness of Christ our Savior. And the writer of the Hebrew letter says that we have confidence we can go to the very holy place in the very presence of God because of what Jesus has done for us for the veil has been torn he says the veil is the body of Christ that Jesus's body was ripped for us so by faith we go through Christ and stand in the very presence of God Almighty this is the access that Christ gives us to God in faith and then the author says not only did Jesus give us access to God through his 
ripped body, but he provides a new and living way. The word new literally means fresh. The author is saying that the death of Jesus was freshly slaughtered. Now keep in mind that he's writing some 30 years after the death of Christ. It's been three decades. And the author says to the church of the first century in the mid-60s, he says, listen, I want you to know that the power of Christ is just as fresh today as it was 30 years ago. You know what I want to tell you today? As the church gathers in this holy place, I want to declare to you today that the blood of Jesus Christ is just as fresh. The crucifixion is just as powerful today as it was 2,000 years ago. We sing in the church that the blood will never lose its power because what Jesus did for us will never become stale. It will never become stagnant. It will never become weak. It will never become impotent. But no, Jesus died for us and he gives us all power and he gives us access into the very presence of God Almighty. He says that Jesus is a new way, but he's also a living way. He's a living sacrifice. That's an oxymoron. A sacrifice is supposed to be dead. A sacrifice was offered once. It was applied just once, and it never got up again. But Jesus is not a dead sacrifice. He is a living sacrifice because on the third day, the lamb without spot, blemish, or defect got up out of the grave and walked out of the tomb. And Jesus is very much alive today. He's as alive today as he's ever been. Church, what the author of the Hebrew letter says to them, I say to you today that you and I look to Jesus, and in Christ we have full access into God's presence. And not only do we have him as our access point into God's presence, but he is our advocate. In verse 21, the author says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, the priest was the mediator, the middleman, the one who stood between the people of God, and the God of the people. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy, we have one mediator. It is the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one single, solitary mediator. He is the advocate. He is the high priest. In the days of antiquity, the high priest would offer sacrifices sometimes daily, sometimes weekly, sometimes monthly, sometimes yearly like on Yom Kippur. But Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice once and for all. It doesn't have to be repeated. The death of Jesus does not have to be duplicated. It is in a class all by himself. Jesus died and his his death and his power is just as prevalent today as it's ever been. He is a living sacrifice. He is the great high priest. He is our access to God. He's our advocate before God. He is our mediator. He is our go-between. He stands with us and he stands for us as we stand in the very presence of God. You see what the author of the Hebrew letter is doing, don't you? He says, listen, don't be complacent. Don't be lethargic. Don't shrink back. Don't diminish your convictions because you're not looking to the circumstances around you. You're looking to the Christ that is within you. He is your access to God. He is your advocate before God. So in light of that, this then is how you live. In light of who Jesus is, this is how you live. So he says in verse 22, draw near to God. 
Because of what Jesus has done for you, you have the capacity, the invitation to draw near to God. We draw near because our hearts are sprinkled. Our guilty conscience is removed. Our bodies have been thoroughly washed with pure water. What rich symbolism. Once again, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when the high priest would go behind the veil and sprinkle the mercy seat, he would also come back. He would stand before the congregation, still with the blood of the lamb in the basin under his arm. He would still take a hyssop plant dip it in the blood. And this time, he would turn to the crowd and sprinkle the crowd with the blood. And on this day of Yom Kippur, you wanted the blood to fall on your skin. You wanted the blood to fall on your garments because you wanted to be covered in the blood of the spotless lamb. Because really what Yom Kippur did, it just pushed off the wrath of God for one more year. And the next year, it had to be duplicated. And the next year, it had to be duplicated. And the next year, it had to be duplicated. So you were just pushing off divine judgment one year at a time. So every year when you came for Yom Kippur, you wanted the blood to fall upon you. Now let's think about this. This is pretty graphic and this is pretty gory. I mean, today, if I were to have a basin right here on the stage, and if I were to tell you it's full of blood, and I've got a hyssop plant, and if I were to dip it, and the moment I raise it up, you would scatter like ants, right? You would duck and dodge. You would say, that's not going to fall on me. No way. But on this day of Yom Kippur, you wanted it to fall on you. You know what the author of the Hebrew letter says? It's not just our skin that's been stained with the blood. It's not just our garments that have been sprinkled with the blood. We have been sprinkled upon our hearts at the very core of who we are. For the heart was the seat of intellect. It was the center of a person. Just stop and think about the heart is in the middle of your chest. It's at the core of who you are. And you, my friend, by faith, have been sprinkled by the blood of the Lamb. So your heart has been sprinkled. Your guilty conscience has been removed. The forgiveness of God is so thorough and it's so complete. Somebody needs to hear this word today. God's forgiveness has always been thorough and complete in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'll give you one example from the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet speaks about his calling and he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up, seated on his throne. The train of his robe filled the temple. The doorposts and thresholds shook. And I realized I was as good as dead. What was me, I, decri- I declared. I am an unclean man with unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord, God Almighty. And one of those six-winged creatures called a seraph took a live coal from the altar of God, that place of forgiveness, and with it he flew to Isaiah at the command of God. And the seraph took that live coal and touched the very lip of Isaiah, that place where Isaiah was well aware of his iniquity. And the Lord declared, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. The forgiveness of God is always thorough and it's always complete. And God knows that in addition to atoning or covering over our sin he's got to deal with our guilt because there's somebody in the house today who knows what it is 
to have skeletons in the closet. You know what it is to have a sordid past. And you know what it is to come to faith in Christ. You know what it is to be forgiven of sin. And yet you still... You still carry the, the guilt around with you and you think to yourself, I don't know if I can forgive myself. Oh, my friend, please hear me clearly. If God can forgive you, then you can forgive yourself. If God can atone or cover your sin, then uh, you can walk in freedom. If God can remove your guilt, then let God remove your guilt so you can walk in freedom in Christ. The writer of the Hebrew letter says, you go are drawn to God because your heart has been sprinkled and your guilty conscience has been removed. But furthermore, your body is completely clean. It's washed from top to bottom. Once again, on that day of Yom Kippur, the priest would go through several ceremonial cleansings and washings, and then he would put on garments that were, that were very clean because he could not stand uh, in the presence of God with anything dirty or defiled. And Jesus has not only cleansed our garments, but He's cleansed our bodies. We are clean. Thoroughly clean. So that Horatio Spafford is exactly right. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Because I have access to God in Christ, because Christ is my advocate, Jesus tells me to draw near to God. And when I draw near to God, I realize that my heart has been sprinkled, my guilty conscience has been removed, and my dirty body has been washed clean with pure water. Praise His holy name. I don't look at the circumstances around me. I look at the Christ that is within me. And the author says, you draw near to God. Secondly, hold unswervingly to the hope you profess. In light of who Jesus is, this is how you live. You hold unswervingly to the hope you profess. Verse 23. Unswervingly means without change, without weakness, unswervingly. Let me try to describe unswervingly. Like many of you, when I was a boy, I idolized my grandfather. I wanted to be just like him. He was a big, tall, strong, strapping man. Uh, he was strong yet tender towards me. I wanted to be just like him. He wore a leather jacket. I wore a leather jacket. He drank his coffee out of a Dunkin' Donuts cup. I drank my Coca-Cola out of a Dunkin' Donuts cup. He drove down the road with his arm hanging out the window. I rode down the road with my arm hanging out the window. He had a massive tattoo on his bulging bicep. I think it was because of a bad night in the Navy uh, but it was, a, it was a Navy ship with a flag behind it, and there were days that he could flex his muscles, and the wave of the flag was just awe-inspiring. Of course, over the years, the flag began to droop, <laughs> and the ship began to sink. But it was still my granddaddy, and so I love granddaddy, and I, I one day told him, granddaddy, I want, I want a tattoo just like you. He said, son, you, you don't need a tattoo like me. He said, if I took you out and got a tattoo, your mama would kill me. And your nana would kill me even a second time. 
He said, you don't, you don't need that. So I, I don't have a tattoo. It's not because I didn't want one. I also don't have bulging biceps. I don't know how that happened either. <laughs> but regardless, one day my grandparents decided to take a few of us grandchildren on a vacation. I don't know what they were thinking. But we went to an amusement park. I can't even tell you what amusement park it was. I was probably a six or seven-year-old, skinny, knobby-kneed little boy. My cousins wanted to ride this death trap called the octopus. I didn't want to ride that thing. There was no way I was going to get on that. I mean, I saw it eat children my size. I saw kids puking, and I don't want to do that. That's not fun to me. But my cousins were persistent. I said, I'm not going on that thing. My grandfather said, uh, I'll go if you go. That's all it took. Well, if granddaddy can do it, I can do it. Now this, this steel death trap, this death warrant called the octopus, it was one of those things that had uh, multiple arms that went out. At the end of each arm was a cart that two people could sit in. And the cart would spin around as the whole thing spun around. It was a vortex. It was horrible. What I know now is the more weight you put in that cart, the faster it goes. My granddaddy was a big man. <laughs> we got in that thing. They strapped us in. I was scared to death. My heart was pounding out of my chest. I had sweat rolling down my face. And then I remember that right before it started, my grandfather took that big bulging arm and put it across my body and grabbed my leg. And at that moment, I took both my scrawny little arms and I gripped him as hard as I could. And then it took off. We were spinning and spinning and spinning. I could still get dizzy just thinking about it right now. I began to scream like a schoolgirl. Granddaddy, make a stop! Make a stop! Make a stop, Granddaddy! And I remember him saying, it will stop in just a minute! And we're going, and we're flying, and we're going, and we're flying. And I am holding unswervingly to his arm. When that apparatus stopped, they had to literally pry my fingers out of his flesh. Why do I tell you that? Because I was holding unswervingly to the arm of my grandfather. The writer of the Hebrew letter says that we hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. See, hope is not just an ideology, but hope is a person. We are told that we are held by Christ, we are held in Christ, and we must hold on to Christ, and the one who holds on to us will never let go. So Edward Moat was exactly right when he wrote, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. We have a hope that is unbreakable. We have a hope that is unbending. We have a hope that is eternal. Our hope is in the one who is our hope, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. In light of who Jesus is, for he is our access to God, he is our advocate before God, that we are to draw near to God, and we are to hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. In other words, we cling to Christ. But third, 
In verses 24 and 25, the author says, in light of who Jesus is, this is how we live. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. The word consider means let us carefully think about one another. You do know you can't do this Christian thing alone, right? Uh, Christianity is not, is not an isolated religion. In fact, half of the Ten Commandments involve you and somebody else. So we have to have each other. We can't do this by ourselves. And so the author says to people who are shrinking back, people who are lethargic about the Lord, people who are noncommittal, people who are fearful of the future, people who are retreating to an old way of life, he says to the believers, listen, don't you let others fall through the cracks. You spur one another on. That word spur means to provoke. It means to instigate with violent emotion. It's the same word that's used to describe the sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15. Here it's used in a more positive light. That we are to spur one another on. We are to spur one another on. Now how do we do this? He gives a couple of examples. He says, you spur one another on for some are forsaking the meeting together. Some are not coming to church. And as you spur one another on, you do this with encouragement. If I could try to describe what spurring is, let me tell you what it's not, then I'll tell you what it is. This is not an example of spurring. You go up to somebody and you say, uh, hey friend, I've noticed that you haven't been in church for uh, you know, several weeks, a couple of months. And um, if, if it's not too much trouble, I mean, It'd be okay. It's convenient for you. Would you think about possibly, perhaps, coming back to church? I mean, I don't want to mess up your schedule. I don't want to do anything that, you know, makes anything inconvenient for you. But if you don't mind, I mean, would you, would you think about possibly, perhaps, coming back to church because we, we really would, we would like to see you. And so, uh, thank you. You walk away from that conversation, you think, boy, I really shared the gospel with him. You didn't. You didn't share the gospel. You didn't even spur. Let me tell you what spurring is. Spurring is, you go up to someone and say, hey friend, I see that you have not been in church for several weeks or a couple of months. Because I love you, because you're my brother in Christ, let me tell you this. You need to get your keister back in church. You need to bring your family as well. Don't give me any excuses that you're too busy. You got something better to do. You're at the lake or the ball field. Listen, church ought to be a priority for you and for your family. And you need to get here. And don't even begin to tell me that somebody hurt your feelings 10 years ago. You got to get over that. If you think you're coming here because the customer's always right, the customer ain't always right. Christ is always right. If you want things your way, you may, may just need to go down to Burger King. But I need to tell you, you need to come. You need to get in church and you need to make a priority. The holy things of God. Thank you. Bless you, brother. That is spurring. That is encouraging with emotion. That, that is spurring one another on in love and good deeds. I ask myself, um, how are we doing regarding church attendance? How are we doing at First Baptist Pelham? 
I'm so glad that you asked because I look back over last year and this year just to kind of compare where we are. In Sunday school in 2014, we averaged on a weekly basis 739 individuals. In 2015, so far this year, we have averaged 784. That's an increase of 45 people. Praise the Lord. In August of this year, our weekly average in Sunday school ballooned to 900 persons. Praise His holy name. Let me tell you what's happening in worship. Last year, I actually had to take a double take at this. Last year, 2014, the average weekly worship attendance was only 623 people in all three services combined. 623 people. In 2015, that number has increased by 242 persons so that this year we're averaging 865 individuals in worship this last month in August. The average worship attendance in the three services was 978 individuals. Bless His holy name. Why am I telling you this? Go ahead, praise His holy name. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this to encourage you. But I'm also telling you this to let you know this is not the apex. It's just the launching pad. I can easily foresee where God will bring 2,000 people into this worshiping community. I can easily see that. I hope you can as well. I mean, if each one reaches one, that's going to happen, right? I mean, I can easily see this. I think that God will continue to bless His church so long as we keep the main thing the main thing. And you ask yourself, and you ask me, what's the main thing? Here's the main thing of the church, to make disciples of people one by one. When we are serious and keep serious making disciples, God will keep adding people to His church so that we can help them in the disciple-making process. And one of the attributes of a disciple is consistent commitment, right? Consistent commitment is always a sign of true discipleship. People have asked me, um, how often do you think people need to come to church? And my pat answer is, I think, I think people need to be here three out of four Sundays of the month. Because I think to myself, we can't call ourselves committed if, if we're gone more times than we're here in a given month. And then I'm convicted by that. Because I think to myself, Lord, I'm sorry that I set the bar so low at 75%. I mean, think about this with me. If you're faithful to your spouse three out of four weeks of the month, are you really faithful to your spouse? If you obey three out of four traffic signs, are you a safe driver? If you go to work three out of every four days, are you going to be gainfully employed very long? If God only forgave three out of every four of your sins, would you be forgiven in His sight? Now, I'm not telling you that because I'm saying that we got to be here 100% of the time. None of us are here 100% of the time. I'm not here 100% of the time. You're not here 100% of the time. But I think oftentimes we think to ourselves, how low can I set the bar and still be called faithful? 
Is it once a month, twice a month, three times a month? And I'm just saying, listen, as a member of First Baptist Pelham, we are committed to this faith family that when we're not here, I want you to know when you're not here, you're missed and you miss something because what we do is extremely important. So the author of the Hebrew letter says, in light of who Jesus is, he is our access to God. He is our advocate before God. This then is how you ought to live. I want you to draw near to God. I want you to hold unswervingly to the faith. And I want you to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. I've told you, you need to come to church. What I haven't told you is why you need to come to church. Let me ask you, why do you come to church? Over the last several years, I have tried to ask Christians, church-going individuals, why do you come? I've gotten a host of answers. People say, I come to church because it refreshes me. I come to church because it refocuses me. I come to church because it rejuvenates me. I come to church because I need to hear the Word of God. I come to church because I need to know I'm not alone in this stage of life. I come to church not only because I need it, but I just might be needed by somebody else. I come to church because God has used the church as one of the primary tools to fashion me into the disciple that I am today. Why do you come to church? Why are you here? I'll close with this analogy. Several years ago, Craig Larson told us the story about how the world was captivated by those three gray whales that were trapped under a five-mile ice cap off the coast of Alaska. These three massive creatures tried to come up to the surface, but because of the jagged ice beneath, they were bruised and battered and bleeding. Rescuers thought, how are we going to get them out from under this five-mile ice cap into the open sea? They concluded that the best way to do it would be to cut breathing holes through the six-inch ice every 20 yards. For eight days, rescuers coaxed these three gray whales from one breathing hole to the next breathing hole to the next breathing hole to the next breathing hole until eventually they got out to the open sea. Craig Larson says that's an analogy of church. Because we are creatures who are battered and bruised and bleeding when we bump into a frozen cold world that is iced over because of sin and selfishness. And God, who is the ultimate rescuer, has put a breathing hole every seven days. And it's called church. It's called corporate worship. And we go from one breathing hole to the next breathing hole to the next breathing hole to the next breathing hole until God takes us home to heaven. I don't know about you, but I come to church to catch my breath. I don't know about you, but I come to church because I'm suffocated by the world. I come to church just to breathe from one week to the next week, from one breathing hole to the next breathing hole. So today, my friend, if you've come, you're a believer in Christ. Before you leave today, don't forget to breathe. Don't forget to refocus. Don't forget to rejuvenate. Don't forget to focus on the one who loves you eternally. Don't forget 
to breathe. From one breathing hole to the next breathing hole to the next breathing hole. You ever missed a breathing hole? You've ever missed a Sunday? And you are chasing to the following Sunday because you feel like you're suffocating by a sinful culture. And God has put in your rhythm, God has put upon your calendar every seven days a sacred day, a sabbatical, a day for you to come and simply catch your breath. Heavenly Father, we bow before you and we need to breathe. For those who are here who have never accepted you by faith today, I pray that they will trust you as Savior and Lord. For those who need to join the church, I pray that today is the day that they come and solidify that they're part of this faith family. For others who are here, they're believers, but they are suffocating. They are struggling. They are looking at the circumstances around them, and it is overwhelming, and it's bogging them down. Oh, Lord, today, help that brother, help that sister just to breathe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.